You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We talk a lot about service in the church, don't we? We talk about serving God. We talk about serving each other. We talk about serving inside the walls. We talk about serving outside the walls. We talk about serving the community. We talk about serving the world. Serve is the third step on our discipleship path. Worship, connect, serve. We spend a lot of time talking about service. We call you on the phone and we say, hey, will you join a serve team? And we make announcements before the services to say, hey, we need some people to serve in this capacity. Because we want to invite all of God's people to be continually following Jesus on the steps of discipleship, and that involves serving God. We need to be careful, however, that we do not think that all God wants are servants. We need to not get it into our minds and into our hearts that the only thing God is after is servants who just sort of are available at His beck and call and you know, who are there every time He rings the bell. Maybe you've watched those uh, period dramas where you know, some sort of British nobility, they have those little strings with the bells in the 18th century. You know, if you're into these kind of shows, they ring the bell and the servants come rushing. If that's how we think about serving God, then we are probably moving into dangerous space. And so we want to talk about service, but we need to understand that God wants a certain kind of service, a certain kind of servant, and not just someone who caters to his every whim. As we talk about service, as we talk about discipleship, as we read through the Scriptures, as we look at Hebrews, as we consider this striking contrast between Moses and Jesus, and we hear about the different ways that both of them have served the cause of the Gospel and the house of God. It's crucial for us to remember that God does not want servants who cater to Him. He wants sons and daughters, children who serve with Him. God does not want servants who cater to Him. He wants children who serve with Him. Now that begins to come clear in Hebrews 3 in this contrast between Jesus and Moses. We hear about Moses, and we wonder sometimes about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we kind of think, what do we do with that? Is that just the thing of the past? Is it over? Is it still doing something? What was the point? All those laws and all those rules. And it's just very difficult to get our head around those kinds of things. And the author to the Hebrews, uh, sometimes I like to call him the pastor, following in the footsteps of some other folks who, who've written on this, this pastor to the community who's given them this teaching, this sermon wants them to understand the relationship between Moses and Jesus and how they're working in the same direction, but they're not doing the same kind of things. Moses 
anticipates Jesus. Moses points to Jesus. Moses is a servant of God who is at work in the house God is building, but he's not doing the same sort of thing that Jesus is doing. We are told that Jesus deserves more glory. Jesus deserves more honor because he's doing a greater work, but the greater work needed to be revealed ahead of time so that the Lord could could give some indications. Here's the kind of thing that I want to do in your presence through you, and throughout the world. And so we're told, Brothers and sisters, holy partners in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just like Moses, here's the similarity, who was also faithful in all God's house. Verse 5, Moses was faithful in Golgon's house as a servant. And so, if we pause for a minute to ask ourselves, what is Moses, what's his job? What does faithfulness look like for him? A few things come to the surface very quickly. Moses was charged with building the tabernacle. If you read through Exodus, you discover that uh, God gives Moses instructions for this tent. It's a very ornate tent. It's a very special tent. But it is a tent. Uh, and the instructions are given. And you think, wow, that was intense. That I know how many cubits the curtains are. And how tall and long. And how they're decorated with these different kinds of ornate things. And you think, I'm glad I survived it. I'm not sure I could have made it if I'd had any more detail about this ancient tent. And then you get to the part where they build the tent, and you discover that all of the details come again. (laughs) And you think, I'm not sure I can make it through the repetition of the details. But the repetition tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that this tent was of great significance. And why is this tent of great significance that chapter upon chapter upon chapter has to be devoted not only to telling us how to build the tent, but actually how it was built? Why is it so significant? Because the tent is the place where God dwells in the middle of the Israelite camp. Anybody ever been camping? I expected maybe a few more hands in that. We like to camp. We went camping a few weeks ago, and uh, sometimes Patrick and I will go backpacking. I want you to take for a minute, or take, take, you know, visualize kind of a standard modern campsite. You may have a tent, maybe two, maybe three. Uh, maybe you're in an RV park, and there are different people kind of lined up and different kinds of things going on. We kind of have this vision of camping in our minds. Take that and reverse it backwards about you know, several thousand years. And you've got thousands of Israelites camping in the desert after God has delivered them from Egypt. And there are tents all over the place. And in the middle is this one spectacular tent, the tabernacle. And it doesn't just symbolize the presence of God. It doesn't just serve as a reminder that, hey, God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life. The tabernacle is the very place at the center of the campout where God lives. So you've been camping, but you ain't ever been camping with God like this. They were on this extended camping trip 
with God dwelling in the middle of the camp. And His presence was manifest. You remember the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? That fire after the tabernacle was built and consecrated, the glory of God's presence moved into that central place of holiness in that tent. Moses was faithful. He was given the dimensions. He communicated those dimensions to the artists and the architects who then reproduced it painstakingly in detail. And then God Himself dwelt among His Moses was faithful in obedience to God to create space in the middle of their camp for God to dwell. It's worth spending some time thinking about that this afternoon and the days to come. What does it mean for God to dwell among His people? Not off out there somewhere, not the big man upstairs, not a grandfatherly figure that you know you go to when you need something, but A God who rescues His people in power and then dwells in their midst is a different kind of God. Moses was faithful in the building of the tabernacle. He was faithful in the communication of God's law, wasn't he? Comes down off the mountain, got those commandments, tablets, two tablets of stone, commandments written on them with God's own finger, Typically, uh, in the movies, there are these big, massive things. Chances are they were a lot smaller because, after all, they had to fit inside the Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) First time he comes down with the commandments, uh, he finds the people worshiping at the foot of a golden calf and throws them down and breaks them. He's got to go back, get another set, comes back down. And those commandments, those pieces of stone, represent God's covenant. And God gave it to Moses, and Moses gave it to the people. And all the commandments, there's hundreds of them, probably not all written on those tablets, but in the text of Scripture we have hundreds of commandments. And we know the first few. We get, you know, don't worship idols and honor your parents, don't kill people and don't steal things. Those make sense to us. But then we get into some other things, and they're very confusing. And the one about not eating shrimp, well, I really like seafood. And, you know, there are things going on there that are difficult for us. And it's hard sometimes to understand, but if you read through these texts, you discover as God gives His commandments, He is trying to teach His people something about His character. Right? Because when they lived in Egypt, there were millions of God all, all over the place, and every God had a different ethical standard. Maybe they weren't so different than our world. Because in our world, everywhere you go, you run into a different ethical standard. This company does it one way, that company does it that way, this guy does it this way, that gal does it that way, this politician wants it this way, that one wants it that way, and it's very hard to sort these things out. Well, in ancient Egypt, when the Israelite people were slaves there, you never knew which God wanted what. It's very difficult to keep up with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of sets of expectations. And so when God brings His people out, He says to Moses, He says, look, if you're going to be my people, you've got to be my people. So 
Don't give yourself to these false gods. Don't go worship them. Don't give them the glory that belongs solely to me. And here's what that looks like. Pay attention to how you worship. Pay attention to how you treat people. Pay attention to what you cook. Pay attention to how you conduct yourselves in your community. And time after time after time, you get these laws that function to show God's people that there is a standard that they don't get to make up as they go along. If there's one thing you get when you read the Old Testament, it's that, hey, we don't get to make this up as we go along. If you create your own gods, you can make it up any old way you want to. But if you serve a transcendent, eternal, living God, he calls the shots. And the law isn't simply about him calling the shots. It's about him revealing the consistency of his character. He always does what's right. And he calls upon his people to look out for the poor and to look out for the vulnerable and to care for the disadvantaged and to respect one another and to not take advantage of people who work for them, and to look out for foreigners who are traveling through their land, and to give them the dignity of work, and to share resources with them. He does these things because he wants them to learn through practice that he's that kind of God. When you were slaves in Egypt, I was exceedingly kind to you. So embody that. And Moses was faithful to communicate these things to the people. But Moses, we are to know, is not the final word. Moses was faithful. And his faithfulness is compared to Jesus' faithfulness. But that's where the similarities cease. We are told that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, verse 3. And the reason comes in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. Here's what it looks like when God dwells in your midst. Here's what it looks like when God embodies His character and wants you to embody, when God reveals His character and wants you to embody His character as well. Here's what it looks like when your sins get forgiven. Right, what it looks like for blood to be shed so that your sins can be forgiven in a sacrificial system. Moses revealed all of these kinds of things. But his revelation, the thing that God did through him wasn't the full thing, wasn't the final thing. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. There's another word that is coming. There's another, another revelation that is coming. And these things don't contradict it, but they do point to it. They say, this is the way. This is what it looks like. This is where we're going. Just like when you're traveling over the holidays and you follow the sign to get on the interstate or the GPS says, hey, this is how you need to go. And if you turn, you confuse it and it gets all turned around. But after a minute, it figures it out and it says, this is the way you need to go. Moses is saying this is what it looks like. This is the direction. This is where we're going. And then Jesus comes and He is not a servant in God's house. He is a son who is faithful over God's house. See the difference? 
Moses serves in God's house, pointing forward to what it will look like when Jesus comes. Here's what it looks like when God dwells among you, tabernacle. Here's what it looks like for God to reveal His character, law. Here's what it looks like for your sins to be forgiven, sacrifice. And then Jesus shows up. And He embodies the presence of God. He is the very image of God walking around in a human body, tabernacling with us. He embodies the character of God. Everything that is true of God, all of His perfect love, all of His perfect righteousness, all of His holiness, He always does what He ought to do. And it is embodied in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he has offered himself his own blood so that our sin could be forgiven. Offered himself his own blood so that we could be atoned, so that, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be drawn to him and made one with him. All those things that Moses is faithful in serving, they point forward to Jesus. Jesus is the one who shows us what it looks like for God to show up in the middle. In all of His holy love. To heal us and redeem us. And not just to bring us into forgiveness, but to bring us into His rest. And when we look at this big picture, Moses is not our model, is he? Jesus is. No one's invited to enter into Moses' role. All of us are invited to walk in with Jesus. Verse 14, we have become partners of Christ. Not partners of Moses. Partners of Christ. And this is where we begin to discover that God doesn't want servants who cater to His whims. He wants sons and daughters who serve alongside Him. He wants sons and daughters who grow up into Christ. Who grow up into Christian maturity. And this is a theme, if you take some time this week and just read through the whole of Hebrews, you hear this again. It's like, let's not settle for small things and let's not settle for milk and baby food. Let's grow up into Jesus and let's pursue maturity in Christ and let's understand that Christianity isn't just about getting your sins forgiven so you can do whatever you want and not feel bad about it. That following Jesus is about being reconciled to God so that you can enter into His rest so that you can serve with Him in the way that He is administering His world in the way that He is caring for the world that He has made. He wants children who serve alongside Him who He has redeems, who He has made whole. Now to understand this, we need again to kind of think about this call that is repeated a number of times in Hebrews 3 and 4. Chapter 3, verse 7, The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts like they did in the rebellion. And by hardening their hearts, they missed out on what? The promised land. So there's this whole thing that's underneath this story. 
got the Exodus. You've got Israelites, slaves in Egypt. And what does God do? He rescues them in power and He gives them His covenant. And they say, we are on board. We are excited. We are here. We're your people. We're feeling good about this. And then a few days go by and a few weeks go by and they're out in the wilderness and they don't quite have all the the fruits and melons and things they had back in Egypt and God feeds them manna and that's good for a little while and then they start to complain about, is this all there is? Where's the water? Where's the food? Like, are we out? Are we just going to starve? Are we going to die of thirst? And they grumble and they complain and they forget that God rescued them gloriously and, and, and in power demonstrating His love for them and His commitment to them. And if the God who brought them out through the waters of the Red Sea does something like that, is He really going to just let them die out there in the wilderness? But instead of trusting Him, verse 19 They didn't enter their rest because of unbelief, failure to trust. Instead of trusting Him, their hearts were hardened. They grumbled. They pushed back. They complained. How easy it is for us. How easy it is for us. To get excited about Jesus one moment. To feel His love and to feel His grace. And then within a matter of days or weeks, where is God anyway? What's going on? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Can you believe they did that? How easy it is to move from how grateful we are that He's redeemed us and reconciled us and forgiven us into this complaining mode. I asked you to raise your hand about camping. I won't ask you to raise your hand about complaining. But take a moment. Think about the last time you complained about something. Somebody's going, what, like right before the service started? <laughs> and now take a moment to think about your motivations in your heart. And in that moment, are you trusting God? Or is your heart being hardened? Here's a moment to let the Holy Spirit do a little work. I open my mouth? Am I expressing trust that God is wise? And even if I'm walking through the wilderness in the ancient Near East or the wilderness that has been the year 2020, where nothing has been what anyone expected or wanted, When I open my mouth, are they words of criticism and complaint? God, what in the world you have? Or are they words of trust? I may not understand, but I will trust you. And if that distinction, like if you understand that distinction, 
you are beginning to understand the call today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts, but enter his rest. You see, his rest is the place where his children come come into their own. Jesus is already there. Jesus has entered into his rest. The griping and the complaining and the dissatisfaction of the wilderness generation means they never entered into the promise of rest, the promised land. And so we, we kind of get these options held out to us here, don't we? You can follow them, or you can follow Jesus. You can complain like them, and you can insist on calling. I mean, really, it's about who is Lord, isn't it? Like the wilderness generation, it, we know better than you, God. We should be in charge of this project. We know that you're the one who rescued us from slavery, but we don't really like the way you're doing it now, so can we just get on the committee and be in charge of this, please? Ever been there? Yeah, of course we have. It's about who will be Lord, who will be King, who will be God. Jesus has entered His rest. And he invites his people to join him in that rest today. Not tomorrow. Not in heaven. Today. The promise of rest is not some future pie in the sky. It is a real experience of the peace of Christ in the present regardless of circumstances. It's also not a vacation. We need to be clear on what the Bible means when it talks about rest. Because when we talk about rest, it usually involves a bed, a couch, or a lazy boy. Throw your feet up, turn on the game, maybe doze off. Uh, When we think rest, we think retirement. (laughs) And I think when we read passages like this, we kind of import, well, rest means I'm not having to work anymore, I'm not having to labor anymore, and, you know, heaven is kind of this eternal vacation, and we just kind of chill and maybe play a little golf if you're into that or whatever, something else if you're into whatever. But rest in the ancient world doesn't mean any of that. When God rests on the seventh day, He's not just kind of kicking back his feet going, man, that really wore me out. (laughs) Try to imagine the Almighty getting worn out and needing a recliner. That's not what's happening in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In the ancient world, rest was the posture of a king when everything in the kingdom was right. God has just built his kingdom, and now he's sitting on his throne enjoying the fruit of his work. He's not disengaged. He's not taking a nap. He's not on vacation. He is fully engaged in overseeing the work of His hand. He's engaged with Adam. He's engaged in the garden. He is ministering to His people. He is executing judgment. All is right and there is no antagonism against Him. 
That's what it means to be at rest in the ancient world. It means you are doing your work, not in this toilsome, laborious, painful, sweat of my brow, thorns coming up out of the ground, but doing my work without opposition, without toil, with joy, and in peace. Jesus is resting now, but he hasn't retired. He's working, isn't he? He's been resting since the day he came out of the tomb. There's a spectacular song by a a contemporary artist named Andrew Peterson. In one of his Easter hymns, he says that Jesus is resting as he is rising. Jesus comes out of the tomb into the new creation. He is not disheveled. He is not toiling. He is tilling the ground of the new world that God is making, and it is bearing fruit, and it is his joy, it is his peace, it is effortless. It's his glory. And he's been resting ever since. Jesus didn't stop resting in 2020. (laughs) We did. (laughs) He didn't. What's he doing right now? Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is interceding for us in his rest. He's praying for you. Here I am and my brothers and sisters. They belong to me. I love them. My blood was shed for them. In his rest, he is calling your name to his Father. And his work bears fruit. In his rest, he is ruling over God's house. In his rest, he is king over all things. How excellent is he? So we come to the end nearly of this year. That has been toil for many of us. It's meant sickness for many. It's meant loneliness for others. It's kind of like the spiritual life has been sucked out of many of us. I know. I've heard stories, testimony. How badly do we need to hear today? Jesus says, Come into my rest. Let your work be a joy, not a labor. Let your ministry be a privilege of a son, not a servant catering to the whims of a detached deity. Today, Jesus invites you to participate in his sonship, to participate in his rest, to participate in his reign, to join him in interceding among to God for the saints and for the world, to join him 
by allowing him to call the shots. What does it look like for Jesus to call the shots in my life? What does it look like for Jesus to have that kind of control and that kind of lordship? Hebrews says it looks like rest. We spend so much of our time resisting the rest that he offers. Just like the Hebrew people in the wilderness centuries, millennia ago. Why can't God get it right? Jesus says, give that up. Don't fight against it. Me? Don't insist on your own way. Don't insist on calling the shots. Don't insist on the complaints. Don't insist on your agenda. Don't insist on the toil. Don't just be a servant. Become a son, a daughter, a child. Today. Today, if you hear his voice. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.